The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable. Settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Our first story for this evening is by author Sarah Piper, entitled The Dry Man. Shadywood Apartments is a long, narrow building that sits at the top of a steep incline overlooking a body of water called Ambassador's Lake. There's a legend about the lake relating to the founders of the town meeting by the shore to settle a new land or something. It's a dry tale not worth the effort of retelling. Looking out from my balcony, I'm graced with a clear view of the lake and the surroundings. There's a paved trail that goes all the way around the lake, Wooden park benches dotting its circumference. Families, friends, and lovers come by the lake just about every day, and observing them has become something of a hobby of mine. I recognize the familiar faces, when I can manage to see their face well enough from a hundred or more yards out, of course. There was one man whose face I never saw, but I spotted him almost every day. He wore a tan fishing cap and cargo pants to match, with a red flannel shirt between. He looked like an angler, except I never saw him with a rod, or even so much as looking in the direction of the lake. Instead, he would just walk around the trail, briefly chatting with those he passed, and otherwise keeping to himself. If I had written about this lake and its visitors a week ago, that paragraph would have been likely the end of his involvement. Unfortunately, I have a tale to tell. It was only about four days ago that the police came to my home. They were going door to door in my complex, and I could make out a brief, indistinct conversation coming from the apartment beside mine. If I'd wanted to, I could have heard the whole thing. These walls have mouths, and if you're willing to listen, you can experience a whole other life in lieu of your own. I try to respect the privacy of my neighbors a little more than that, though. Knowing they would inevitably come to my door... 
I was prepped and ready by the time the knocks finally came. I opened the door and greeted them with a warm smile. After a brief round of introductions, one of the officers got straight to the point, asking me, Do you recognize the name Helen Carmine? I said I didn't, and they produced a photograph, holding it out for me to take. It was of Ambassador Lake in the surrounding park. The focus of the image was a boy and a girl, each very young, standing beside one another and posing for the camera. In the background were a dozen more people engaging in standard park fare. The officer indicated a bench just above the young boy's head, quite a distance away. Two people sat on the bench, seemingly engaged in a conversation. This is the last time anyone saw her alive. Do you recognize her or the man sitting with her? Actually, I do, kind of. Not her, I mean, but the man. Unmistakably, it was the man with the flannel shirt. I explained to him them what I knew, that he visited the lake often, and to meet him they'd likely just need to wait there a day or two at the most. They thanked me for my time, gave me a card to call in case I remembered anything else, and visited the next apartment. I thought about what they'd told me, tried to imagine the flannel-shirted man as anything other than a harmless old fisherman, reliving his past via proximity to water. The police officers had warned me to be wary of them, that he may be dangerous. Finding it hard to believe, I told myself over and over, it's never the ones you think it'll be. Night falls quickly around here, as dark and foreboding as the days are bright and warm. I sat at my computer, immersed in the cool glow of the monitor, when it occurred to me that the rest of my apartment was pitch black. I got up and moved across the living room, heading to the light switch by the door. But just as I was about to flip it, I heard a knock at the door to the apartment beside mine. I paused and glanced at the clock below my TV. 12.28 it read. It seemed strange to me that the police would come around at such a late hour, but perhaps they'd learned something new and significant or perhaps the neighbor had remembered something and called for them to return. Whatever the reason, when a response didn't come after a few seconds, the footsteps began to move towards my door. I softly gripped the doorknob and leaned forward to peer through the peephole. This latter action was taken on instinct, and if I'd really thought about it, I likely wouldn't have bothered. I don't like to think about what might have happened if I hadn't looked through the peephole first. Before my door stood the man in a fishing cap, flannel shirt, and cargo shorts. Had that been the end of it, I still may not have been as wary as I was. No, what kept my door closed and froze the rest of my body in the process was the rest of his appearance. He was, in a word, dry. What I could see of his pale skin was ashen, looking as though it may flake off at the slightest touch. The brim of his fishing cap came down over his face and obscured his eyes, but his lips were plain to see, chapped and split, with jagged bolts of crimson highlighted against the pink-white coloration. White, wispy hair dangled on either side of his head out from beneath his cap. The man raised his fist and knocked on the door. On my door. Three times. I was a statue. 
glued to my peephole for fear that he may notice the flicker of light through the lens changing. Something deep inside me told me I didn't need to hear anything I had to say, that the best course of action was just to wait and let him go on his way. And so he did. After what could have been more than a handful of seconds, the man in the flannel shirt turned and moved on, continuing down the row of apartments and stopping at the door of my neighbor on the other side. Just a minute, came the reply from an obviously agitated woman. As uncomfortable as I was with the man's presence, I was just as curious as to what he wanted of us. Against my better judgment, as well as a principal or two of mine, I sidled up to the wall and pressed my ear against it, listening intently. What do you... Jesus Christ! The neighbor exclaimed. Do you need help? The reply came in a voice so dry and dusty, it hurt my own throat to hear. Do you have some water? The man asked. A pang of guilt struck through me. He was obviously dehydrated, and I'd left him locked outside to die. What kind of monster was I? I heard the sound of the chain unlatching, followed by the door closing and the two of them making their way to the kitchen. She moved in quick, long steps, while his gait was a low-tempo shuffle, sliding across her apartment as she poured him a glass of water. "'You look like you're going to need a lot,' she said. "'Drink this, and I'll get you another glass.' "'Don't bother,' came the low rasp of a response. "'It won't do any good.' A silence fell over the apartment. I heard about that, about how by the time you realize you're actually dying of hydration, it may be too late to do anything about it. I wasn't sure how true it was, but it seemed odd that the man had so readily accepted his fate. That's really ridiculous. Come on, drink. Have you heard the tale of the dry man? He asked her another pause. No, I haven't, but... The way it was told to me was this. Long ago, hundred years or more, society wasn't quite like what it is today. Less civilized, brutal. He stopped briefly, and I heard the sound of a chair being dragged across the floor. Time was you could hang a man just because you had a grudge and more friends than he. Simpler, in a way, harder, and a lot more. Back then, there was a fellow by the last name of Keene. First name. Well, I can't quite remember his first name. It doesn't matter much. A man lives on his actions more than his name. Keene was a drunk by nature and a loud one at that. In and out of a cell, Keene was like it was his home away from home. The faucet from their apartment turned on again, and the sound of a glass being filled with water followed. Funny, I thought. I haven't heard him stop for drink yet. One day, the sheriff gets it into his head that he's going to teach Keene a lesson. You like the drink so much, he says. That's all you'll get to drink. Keeps Keene in the cell unlawfully, though not against the wishes of the town, and feeds him nothing but bread and beer with some game for dinner. 
A strange, dry staccato issued from the apartment, and it was a few more minutes before I realized it was the man's laughter. Guess the sheriff figured he better feed Keen well, even if he doesn't treat him right. The faucet turned on again, and another glass was poured. My own mouth felt a little dry, but I chucked it up to a sympathetic reaction. Man cannot live on beer and bread alone, now, even if he was raised on the bottle. The sheriff has his big barrel of water right beside his desk that he drinks from every day, right in front of Keene. The drunk begs and pleads, says he'll never touch another drop of alcohol in his life. A lie, both of them knew. But the sheriff is stalwart, refuses to let Keene out, and just keeps drinking that water in front of him day after day. Two weeks of this goes by, until it seems the sheriff won't ever let Keen out. So the drunk, dehydrated, dying man, stops pleading. That night, when the sheriff and Keen are having their respective dinners, the sheriff helping himself to as much water as he could guzzle, Keen starts telling him what it's like. Doesn't know why, really, but something possessed him to describe the way the air burned his throat on the way out and stung coming back in. He talks about his tongue, dry as a forgotten sponge, sitting in his mouth, scraping against his cheeks and his teeth and his gums. Can't get it comfortable no matter where he puts it. Says he thought about chewing it off just to give it somewhere else to be. The faucet was running non-stop at this point, but I could still clearly hear the man's voice over the sound of the water. The sheriff, wouldn't you know it, starts drinking more water right in front of Keen. Ladle after ladle, he scoops into his tin cup, then directly into his mouth, until soon the ladle isn't enough. The sheriff bends over the barrel and just starts lapping out of it like a dog, then sticks his face in and starts gulping it down, mouthful after mouthful of water. And all of this right in front of a man dying of dehydration? <laughs> he laughed with that harsh, awful laugh again. <laughs> Spiteful. Petty is what it was. But there he goes sticking his head further and further into the barrel until he just stops, slumps down over the edge of the barrel, gone limp. What the hell? The woman said in a breathless voice, as though she was responding to something else entirely. Her voice startled me. I almost forgotten she was in the apartment. It had felt as though the man was talking directly to me. I was parched, but I stayed where I was. I didn't want to miss a word, the man said. Keen gets out of the cell a little while later, when the deputy comes by and sees what's happened. Couldn't have been Keen, man's as shriveled as a prune. Even if he wasn't locked in a cell, he couldn't have held the sheriff's head under like that. With nothing to hold him on, Keen walks free, and then he just walks. 
goes wherever his feet take him. Soon after, the rumors start spreading. Stories of the dry man. A withered white with nothing but his tale of torture to tell. Cursed to watch others gorge themselves on the one thing he wants most, but can't ever have. God forgive me. Anyway, he grunted, sliding his chair across the floor again. I've taken up enough of your time. Thanks for letting an old man share his story. His short shuffles carried him to the front door, despite the absence of any meaningful response from his host. The door opened, closed, and just like that there was silence again, save for the ever-running faucet from next door. Quickly, I made my way to the front door, peering out of the peephole for another glimpse of the man, but he was gone. Feeling more than a little tired, likely coming down off that odd primal adrenaline rush, I made my way to the kitchen for a glass of water before bed. Drinking it down more quickly and readily than I recalled ever having done in the past, I made myself another to chase it down before heading to bed, expecting the water to slake my thirst sometime in the night. Upon awakening, I discovered it had not. I didn't even have to use the bathroom. I just wanted more water. In my PJs, I stumbled back to the kitchen, pouring myself another glass when the red and blue flashes coming through the front curtain distracted me. As I pieced together in the next ten or twenty minutes, my next-door neighbor had, at some point in the night, called 911 immediately before drowning in her own bathtub. My thoughts immediately went to the story from the night before of the sheriff drowning himself in the barrel of water. I took a drink from my glass. Scanning the crowd of police officers and EMTs, I spotted a familiar face. One of the two who had visited me the day prior was taking a statement from another man who lived in my building. I made my way into his line of sight as unobtrusively as possible and signaled him to speak with me when he got a chance. He nodded his understanding and a short time later met up with me in front of my apartment. Did you see or hear anything? He asked as he approached. I nodded and grunted through a mouthful of water, swallowing. Yeah, the, the man you were looking for with the flannel shirt? I saw him last night. He knocked on my door and when I didn't answer, he went to hers. I know I shouldn't have, but I, I listened through the wall. What did you hear? I told him the story of Keene, the sheriff, and the dry man, in much the same way as I described it to you. I said I had no reason to suspect the flannel man had done anything, as it sounded like he'd left before going anywhere other than her living room. But I admitted to falling asleep shortly thereafter. The officer thanked me and I went back inside, setting the mostly empty glass down on the counter. An hour later, that officer drowned himself in Ambassador Lake in front of all of his friends and colleagues. Nobody knew what to do. Several people had tried to help him, tried to go to him and pull him ashore, but he brandished his gun at anyone who got close even as he dunked his head underwater, taking deep, obvious breaths of it, like he was trying to fill every part of himself with the like. It was only when his body went limp and anyone felt brave enough to approach 
but of course by then it was too late. I watched the whole scene unfold with morbid fascination. Something about it satisfied me, kept me looking down on it as it played out long after I felt I should have turned away. I wasn't happy the man was dead, and I certainly had nothing against police officers in general, but the event fulfilled me, made me feel as though I could keep going. Perhaps, I reasoned, it was one of those spiritual concepts. One life ends as another truly begins. An impromptu quarantine was placed around Ambassador Lake, and the water in our building was shut off for fear of contaminants. Speculation grew like weeds, and many Shadywood residents relocated elsewhere, to hotels or with family in the city. I stayed right where I was. This was my home, after all. I looked out on the lake that night. The quarantine was still in effect, though I doubted how effective a strip of yellow tape around a lake really was. I tried to imagine myself in the position of that officer, taking heaving lungfuls of water without even flinching. The act seemed abhorrent, and I almost turned away in disgust, until I noticed him. The man in the flannel shirt walked a lazy zigzag down the path that surrounded the lake. His eyes wandered back and forth, as if he was just another park-goer taking in the sights. Never mind that it was nearly midnight. I studied him intently, and a thought occurred to me. A crazy, ridiculous thought. Was that the dry man? Made sense, didn't it? He told the story to my neighbor, and she drowned herself in her tub before dawn. And his appearance, his dry, chapped, ashen appearance, lent more credibility to the theory than I was comfortable with. If I assumed that a person could exist with the ability to talk someone into drowning themselves, and that this person was known as the dry man, well, the more I thought about it, the more obvious, albeit far-fetched, it seemed. I was so lost in thought that I didn't notice for a long while that the man in the flannel shirt had stopped moving. It was only several seconds after noticing this that I made another discovery. He was staring directly back at me. Me, the occupant of the apartment he had visited the night before. The home I had led him to believe was vacant. Instantly, I fell on the floor. It was childish, yes, but I couldn't think of a quicker way to break line of sight. I sat there with my back to the wall, praying he didn't see me. There was nothing I wanted less than a conversation with that man. Too fast. That was way too fast. It was impossible that he'd run up the slope, found my door and knocked in that brief amount of time, wasn't it? Did that mean it wasn't him? Who else would knock on my door three times in the middle of the night? The silhouette of a man moved in front of my curtains, backlit by the street lamps outside. He was clearly facing into the apartment, swaying gently back and forth. I held my hands over my mouth, barely even breathing through my nostrils. Every light in my small home was on. If I moved, I almost certainly gave myself away. Not that I hadn't done that already. The black shape stood there as if staring at me, and I stared right back. 
Neither of us moved, save for his gentle swaying, the rhythmic rocking back and forth. I focused on that, concentrated on the left and right and left and right, side to side, like a lazy human metronome. For what felt like hours, I watched him, waiting for him to leave, or to come back to my door and knock again, or do anything other than stand and sway. I awoke in the late morning, startling to my feet, a moment after regaining my senses. The silhouette at my window was gone, and after a brief, hasty search of my apartment, I confirmed I was still alone. I went to the kitchen, grabbing a glass and holding it under the faucet before turning the knob. Right. Empty-handed, I went back to my laptop and tried my best to go about my day. I forced myself not to think about the encounter from last night or the fact that I felt as though I was living in slum conditions, with officials in various suits coming and going from apartment to apartment. They came once to my door, but after confirming my water was turned off and a brief physical inspection, they mostly left me alone. The majority of the attention was concentrated on my neighbor's home. More troublesome than commotion, however, was my thirst. When they dropped by the last time, the apartment manager had given me several bottles of confirmed clean water. Went through all five in two hours, and I still felt like I was running a marathon in a desert. My lips smacked whenever I opened them, my tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth for several seconds before I'd forcibly peel it away. It was the strangest combination of feelings. My skin registering a comfortable 72 degrees, while the inside of my mouth had me convinced I must have been licking sand. I stared out at the lake again, the wide blue lake full of water, and the heat in my mouth seemed to ratchet up, as if just looking at water was making what little must have remained in my mouth evaporate away. The quarantine was just a strip of tape. I'd watched the man drown himself. I wouldn't drown myself. I just needed a drink. Before I knew it, I was sliding down the slope behind my home. There was a set of stairs a little further than I'd gone, but it would have been a waste of time. Time I could spend getting closer to the water, getting into the water, getting the water in me. I jogged up to the bank of the lake, slipping under the police tape. Distantly, I heard someone yelling at me to stop, but they didn't understand. I'd be right back, out in just a second, take my slap on the wrist. This was a matter of life and death. Immersing my head in the soft, cool water of the lake was the single greatest moment of my life. I let it flood into every orifice on my head, surrounding myself in the cool refreshment the nourishment I so desperately craved. I took in gulp after gulp, practically sobbing into the water in relief. I'd almost died out there in the heat under the oppressive sun, but now I would live. I was so grateful just to be alive. The bliss lasted only a moment before several pairs of meaty hands grabbed me, pulling me from the water, I was dragged onto the trail around the lake, kicking and sputtering the entire time. The water flowed out of me in great heaves as I bitterly sucked in the dry air, feeling it lacerate the roof of my mouth in desiccating streaks. 
My next physical examination was much more thorough. They confirmed that I had been given water, but they didn't believe I'd actually drank any of it. There was no urine in my unflushable toilet, and my body showed signs of extensive dehydration, signs which they admitted should have been discovered during the morning's checkup. They gave me a pallet of bottled water and ushered me into my room. I finished the water in half an hour, and I needed more. Another check outside confirmed my fears. There were guards posted around the lake now, moving in tight patrols. From my vantage point, I couldn't see any breaks in their formation, but I had to hold out hope that there would be. I had to get back into the lake, back to that sweet sensation I tasted too briefly. Resolving myself to go outside and watch from a closer, more actionable position, I discovered something else. There was a guard posted at my door, a gorilla of a man that took up nearly the entire passageway. He turned to face me when I opened it. Going out? he asked. I laughed and glanced past him. Several people in lab coats looked our way with worried expressions. Uh, yeah, are you going to try to stop me? I was only half joking. Uh, we're doing everything we can to resolve the situation. Translation? Yes, I am. This is ridiculous. Get out of my way. I tried to push past him, but he just stood there, arms crossed, barring my passage. We'll let you know as soon as the situation is resolved. Food and water will be provided to you at your request, within reason. With that, he gave me a gentle shove and closed my own front door in my face. I reacted poorly. I screamed insults and slurs at the man outside, and everyone I imagined could possibly be in earshot. My voice probably carried through the entire complex, though it was unlikely many people had stayed behind long enough to hear. When yelling didn't work, I resorted to violence, pounding and bashing on the door as if it was being held closed from the outside, which, in a matter of speaking, it was. That option became closed to me when I slumped to the floor, exhausted and defeated. I felt as if I was going to die in my apartment, killed by the very people who were supposed to be protecting me. If only they'd let me stay under the lake a little longer. I could feel the satisfaction approaching. It was within arm's reach when I was removed. There was no substitute for it. The lake was the only place large enough to help me. I waited there on the floor for hours, saving my strength, waiting for the right moment to make my move. It wouldn't do to be found out too early and have the situation escalate into a personal bodyguard or, more likely, mandatory relocation to somewhere with padded walls and straps and locks. Just until I was myself again. Uh, just until I was safe. Forget that. They just didn't understand. Knuckles white, fingernails digging into my palms. I pushed myself past midnight. It had to be utterly dark out there. I was only going to get one chance at this. I stared desperately at my digital clock, and as soon as it struck one, I made my move. The glass sliding door that led to my balcony was, thank God, the most well-designed door I'd ever had in my life. It slid open like a dream every time, without so much as a squeak. Never before had I been so appreciative 
of master craftsmanship was when I closed it silently behind me, tiptoeing out across my balcony. Next were the rails. Slatted, the gaps between them were much too narrow to squeeze through, even for someone with my slighter frame. I would have to go over, and that meant adding another few feet to the already intimidating drop. Getting to the position of sitting on the rail, legs dangling over the edge, was easy. I then rolled over, gripping the edge tight with my fingers, and slowly easing myself down to a fully stretched-out position. From there, I planned, I would slowly lower myself to the bottom of the rail, cutting my drop by just that much more distance. That was my plan, anyway. As soon as I let go with one hand, the other quickly followed suit, and I plummeted straight down, hitting the slope below at a gentler angle than I had imagined. Suppressing a yell, I curled into a ball as best I could while rolling down the hill, crunching and snapping through dried leaves and branches. The sounds reminded me of my own dehydrated state. Salvation was only yards away. On my hands and knees, I crawled toward the lake, scanning for the patrolling guards. They weren't hard to spot. They swept the area with flashlights, moving back and forth as they always had. One of the beams settled on a spot a few feet to my left, doubtlessly having heard my rapid descent. I scurried towards a tree to my right and pressed my back against it, letting out my breath in a long, slow exhalation. It was so close. Half a minute passed before the patrol got bored or off schedule or both and moved on. Just as I was about to get up and make a break for it, a voice startled me so much I almost let out a yelp of surprise. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Sitting in front of me in the brush, having appeared as quickly and silently as ever, was him, the dry man. He sat bow-legged, his fishing cap tilted forward to obscure his eyes, but certainly looking into mine nonetheless. Despite my ravenous thirst, I stayed frozen where I was, watching him, waiting for him to continue. I envy you, you know, with that stunt you pulled earlier. You got to feel it and live. Few people can say that, I tell you. When I opened my mouth to speak, my voice came out as a rattle. He heard the dry man. He chuckled that horrible laugh of his, that sound like an old man choking on a piece of dry chicken. <laughs> no, no, he said, waving the idea away with his hand. I'm not him. I'm just one of his disciples, I suppose. And now, so are you. I frowned. What are you talking about? It felt strange to be having a conversation with a supernatural horror, but the past few days had been anything but ordinary for me. I was willing to give this a pass. You listened to my story through the walls, didn't you? I couldn't be sure until you took a dip today. They say it's the best feeling in the world. Nothing better, I agreed. I felt it, too. At least, the shade of it. 
That's when I knew you must have been eavesdropping. Must have heard it same as that other poor woman. The dry man looked almost sorrowful, his dried lips drawn into a deep frown. You knew what telling her that story would make her do. I did, he confessed. But don't talk like you're any different. Here you are, trying to run off to die. Taken aback, I shook my head. No, I'm not. I don't want to die. I just need a drink. The dry man sighed. If he was half as dehydrated as I was, and his appearance suggested he was much more so, the action must have been hell on his throat. Look, I've never done this before, so forgive me if I forget to mention something I should have, but you and I were the same now. That's impossible. I've never been tortured. Hell, I'm not a century old. I remembered the details of the story all too vividly, even days later. Another wheezing chuckle. Neither am I. I told you, I ain't the dry man. I'm just a dry man now, same as you. He held up a finger to silence me before I could interrupt. You and I play by the same rules. We can't have water anymore, not a drop, or it sends us into a frenzy. You're feeling like that now, I imagine. I was. You have some water and it only makes things worse. You gotta have more. And before you know it, you're finding a big basin and dunking your head in holding it there until you can't hold nothing anymore. You understand me? What... What am I supposed to do? Spread the word. Tell the tale of the dry man. Those who hear it will feed your thirst. The water they drink nourishes you. Like I said, the stunt you pulled today set me bright as rain for a good long while. That's why I'm willing to do you this favor. I stared at him and gasped. So you... You murder people just so you can get something to drink? That sorrowful look returned to his face and he slowly got to his feet. Morals have to take a backseat to reality sometimes, kid. He finally said before looking out across the lake. Some days there's nothing I'd like more than to just dive right in and feel it one last time. Embrace the end of a miserable existence. I watched him look at the lake for a long, silent moment, finally breaking it with, But you don't. But I don't. The man in the flannel shirt conceded. Neither, I'm betting, will you. He then left me alone by the water. The next morning, they found every single patrolman face down in Ambassador Lake. A mandatory evacuation was enacted on Shadywood Apartments, as well as a manhunt for a certain resident who had gone missing in the night after eluding supervision. I'm so sorry for what I've done. You know the rules now, and some of you will survive. Some of you will become me but I don't think all of you will. 
Some of you won't believe. Others just won't have it in them. I don't expect you to forgive me, but I hope you understand. And if you don't yet, you will soon. Our second story for this evening, entitled Blackout at 3rd and Main, comes from author Aaron Shotwell. I've always had a fascination for the paranormal, investigating ghost stories and urban legends since I was a kid. If I ever heard a story that included the words, They say if you go there at midnight, that I was there at midnight, waiting for a genuine encounter. In hindsight, I wish I hadn't. If you chase a shadow long enough, you're bound to find the caster. Trust me when I say this, you don't want to know. Yeah, I know that's how these stories usually begin. Please don't read this or... I don't care if you believe me. It piques your curiosity, keeps you reading. Well, I'm warning you now, and I want you to listen carefully. You don't want to know. Keep your thrills vicarious. Stay behind your computer monitor where it's safe. You're better off wondering and guessing, because curiosity without discretion is a dangerous thing. I'm going to tell you how I learned it the hard way, and I hope it will keep most of you from meddling too much for your own good. You don't want to find yourself living like me. I'm not even sure I can call it living anymore. I only hope I can finish this in time, because most of the time I have these days does not belong to me. There have been so many myths, tales of gods, demons, spirits, and creatures of worlds beyond our own. The old stories changed over time and the beliefs changed with them, yet somehow mankind has always feared and worshipped the same things. Psychologists see it as a need for closure. They say we fear the unknown and we would accept anything to make sense of the world, even if it means believing in a total fabrication. Everything has a rational explanation, right? We live in a secular age, so that's the assumption. Then again, they also say that where there's smoke, there's fire. When I heard and read all of these stories, I came to question what society told me. Could they all really be the superstitions of Ignorant primitives inspired by firelight, paranoia, and mind-altering substances? Or were these truly things to be feared even before the songs and legends? That's what I wanted to find out. So, I buried my nose in mythology books and ghost stories, and I kept my ear to the ground for urban legends. I explored them all, well, all the local ones, anyway, I tested everything from the ghost ship of the Hudson River to the infamous Bloody Mary. 
Every search was a disappointment, but it never discouraged me. It was a great hobby, and I still went through the motions just for the thrill. As I had come to expect, I never exactly struck gold. That is, not until the night of the blackout at 3rd and Main. It was the night of spring break after a long and grueling semester. Most of the other students migrated to Manhattan for loud, obnoxious parties. My small group of friends and I, on the other hand, preferred peace and quiet. Apparently, peace and quiet on that particular night meant a trip to a lovely Irish pub called Piper's Kilt. Don't ask me what the hell we were thinking. I couldn't tell you. That's where I met a drunken old immigrant by the name of Tom. He was a strange man, which made the conversation all the more entertaining. Even if we did have to shout over some surprisingly upbeat song about a sinking ship. I told him about my little hobby over the customary pint of Guinness, and he told me a story that I now wish I'd never heard. He said that Irish traditions run far deeper than its Catholic years, and he told me about the long-held Celtic legends of the Fae. He told me of the Banshee, of the Fomorian giants, and of the Leprechauns. To that last one, he added, I'll have you know they're not the little people you've been told of, Sonny Jim. Aside from the conversation, the audience participation's folk songs tend to grow on you, once you're good and buzzed, and we stayed longer than I had expected. After a few more rounds, the night ended just as one expected. A sobering visit to a terrible diner with terrible coffee. A dear friend also made it to a point to get hammered beyond the point of no return, and I had to drive him home so he wouldn't end up parking his car in somebody's living room. I slept on the couch with the internet on, taking him to pick up his car in the morning, provided that he didn't wind up in a coma. I'd have been a hypocrite to look down on him, though. He had done the same for me in the past, twice. So, after helping him up to his bedroom, nearly breaking my back in the process, I retired to the couch. I passed out after two episodes of an I Love Lucy marathon and a couple of annoying infomercials. Ordinarily... After a hearty helping of alcohol, it wouldn't take me so long to find sleep. That, however, was in my own bed. I never slept well in strange places. Plus, I still had the spirited racket of the old dun cow running through my head, along with Tom's fascinating stories. I wish those waking hours would have lasted. They are the last normal memories I have, the last memories that I can confidently call my own. But an hour later, well into the hangover I had earned, I woke up to a dark house. Every standby light and every electronic device turned black, including the clocks. I peered through the window behind me, lifted one of the blinds, and stared out across the street. Every porch light had died at some point in the night, and I couldn't see much of anything. I figured a storm must have rolled overhead and killed the power on the block. I'd slept through louder things on nights like that, after all. I was ready to write it off and go back to sleep, but then I looked at my watch. However long before, it had stopped at exactly midnight. Old Tom's final story came to mind. 
The old believers called him the Black Gambler, he told me. Temper and tricksters of the Fey folk. The greedy for wealth and power bartered with him for their souls, called him on the darkest midnight hour, and he came as a dark man at the crossroads. It could have been a coincidence, sure. Most people probably would have ignored it. I, however, had a tendency to dismiss reason in favor of whimsy. It came with the territory. If ever there was a time to test the myth, I wouldn't have found one better. Of course, I had no expectations, as usual. I would take five minutes of my time to humor the old man, another two or three to take a much-needed leak and head back to bed. With that plan in mind, I stepped through the front door and into the night. My first thought was that my previous assumption was wrong. I could smell no rainfall, could feel no moisture on the air, and there were no puddles or wet spots. There had been no storm. It didn't stir me, though. Blackouts can have other causes. More concerning was the darkness and silence. It felt foreboding and wrong, but I dismissed it like everything else. I was just allowing my mind to play tricks on me, that was all. Just letting myself feel the fear I was supposed to feel, and the feeling subsided a bit when I saw the starlight overhead. That's the meeting place, he told me. Crossroads represent choice and consequence, and that's where you'll find him if he hears your call. So, minding my step in the dark, I approached the nearest intersection to my wasted friend's front porch, and I glanced at the street sign as I stood at the curb. Third and Main. I stared at it for a moment before fishing in my jacket pocket for the next step. If you wish an audience with the black gambler, you must dig a shallow hole at your nearest corner. In that hole, bury a single key. That is the ticket to the space between our world and theirs. The space where he can see you, and he may allow you to see him. Somehow, when I followed Tom's story, I imagined an old dirt road in an open field. I'd imagined an old antique key, a heavy thing you might suspect, would open a dungeon or an old cellar. It felt ridiculous to make do with what I had on hand, and I hoped this fey person wouldn't be too particular. Fortunately, I had a selection of useless keys that could have impressed a janitor. I pulled it out of my keyring and selected a forgotten, old thing that probably opened a padlock I'd lost. Part of its silver coating peeled away from the copper base. I removed a hefty clump of my dear friend's front lawn and placed it beneath, then returned the soil and patted it in. The job wasn't neat, but I doubt he would have cared. He wasn't exactly a proud gardener. Once that key is in the earth... You've opened the door between our world and theirs. Only mortals with dire purpose venture to the land between, so be careful and be sure. Be sure you're ready, lad, and don't step into the road until you are. With a deep, sarcastic breath, I assured myself that I was sure and took my first step into the road, heading for the center of the intersection. I stood there, waiting with my acquired cynical streak for five minutes. Five minutes became ten minutes. 
Ten minutes became twenty. Twenty minutes became a week, which became thirty seconds. Two days, five months, an hour, twenty years, an instant and an eternity. Before I knew what was happening, my sense of time slipped away as I spiraled into a sudden, seemingly endless nightmare. At some moment in that timeless hell, the trance over me subsided and I became aware of my surroundings again. This was the land between. I had expected it to be a state of mind, some exaggeration of an old druid's meditation, but this was real. That is, if real is an accurate word to describe it. It was unlike any place on earth, unlike anything I'd ever felt. It's hard to explain to someone who has never set foot there, but I'll try. At first glance, it looks much the same as it does in our world. It has the same structures, the same colors. But you know something isn't right. That world is too still, like a rigor mortis snapshot of something that should be alive. There's no wind, no breath of life. It's a world not meant for us, and if you come into it deaf and dumb, you feel no heat or cold against your skin. You don't feel the ground beneath your feet, not even the movements of your own body. It's like an unending tomb, a world of stone, where you feel nothing and float aimlessly in complete silence. Listen for a voice, lad. That's him talking. You'll know it when you hear it. He sees you. That's when your test begins. Of course I'd know it when I heard it. It would be the only thing I could possibly hear. Sure enough, I did. It was faint, almost not there at all, but I heard it. Under any other circumstances, I doubt I would have called it a voice. No human lips were forming those syllables, and that deep groan was not a sound from human vocal cords. Nevertheless, it was speaking to me. I can't tell you what it said, if anything at all. It was just an acknowledgement of some sort, maybe even a greeting. It terrified me. You will first meet with a great beast, a thing of nightmares. And it'll know you better than you know yourself. You will face it, and you will face all of your fears, all of the things that ever struck your heart cold, all of the things that ever haunted your dreams. But don't run. He warned me, you must not run. To do so will break the right, and to break the right is to insult the gambler. You don't want to insult him, Sonny Jim. I can promise you that. Whatever robbed me of my senses began to return them ever so slowly, or perhaps they returned on their own out of some overpowering, instinctive necessity. Whatever the case, I would receive the beast with every primal sense fully alert, and I felt its rumbling steps beneath my feet as it approached. It emerged from the deepest darkness down the road, a colossal mountain of fur and muscle towering over the dead street lamps, its grotesque form veiled in silhouette. It seemed all at once as a giant wildcat, a hulking bull, and a monstrous bear, and it lowered its face to less than two feet from mine. It growled and huffed, its breath like a hot sandstorm stinging my face, and I saw myself in its eyes. 
I saw myself as it saw me. That is where the true terror began. Old Tom was right. I did face all of my fears, every one of them. The fear of death, the fear of heights, of drowning. The fear of losing my job or of dying alone. The fear of accomplishing nothing in my life. And fearing the pressure and responsibility of leadership. The fear of my creepy neighbor across the hall. The fear of lightning storms and of the dark. Even my childhood fears, once funny in hindsight, came crawling back. The fear of seeing my grandmother for the first time without her dentures. The fear of the monster in my closet. The fear of large dogs. The fear of the school bully. And the fear I once felt when I was separated from my mother at a crowded mall. He'll be watching. If you pass the test, because most don't, he'll take an interest in you. He'll come to you as a man in a dark cloak and he'll ask you a question. A choice, one that only you can make. I didn't run, but it wasn't out of bravery. It was because I was frozen in fear, my legs quaking beneath me, and in genuine tears that I hadn't spilled since I was a kid. In fact, I was no longer needed to take that leak that I'd planned for. I stood there for another eternity, failing to catch my breath for much of it. Then I saw him standing at the corner, staring at me. He wasn't a man in a dark cloak. He wasn't really a man at all. Details twist over time through poetic embellishment and mistranslation. So what you hear is never completely truthful. Then again, nothing the storyteller's spin could compare you for the reality of these things. There are simply no words to describe them. Even I am likely misleading you now, though I'm trying to be as literal as possible. Most cultures have their stories about them, and the way most describe him is honestly the most accurate way possible. He is a dark man at the crossroads, at all crossroads, and all crossroads belong to him. He didn't move at first, instead, he spoke to me, and his voice was a soft breeze on the stillness, a wordless whisper. He did offer me a choice, though it wasn't really an offer. It was simply a curiosity for my will and true desire, if I truly wished for what was to come. My answer came in spite of me, and the answer was yes. Yes, I would commit a sacrifice for his gift. Yes, a higher purpose mattered more than my life, and yes, I would do what was required of me for these things. In response to my answer, he approached me, and I felt a biting chill blow past me as he neared. The closer he came, the less distinct he appeared. His shape wasn't that of a man, but that of a man's shadow suspended in the air, nebulous and immaterial. At brief moments I could see the vague suggestions of a face, but never enough to read his expression. He stood, motionless, before me for several minutes, and then extended to me one intangible hand. Present the gambler with a possession of yours, an item of personal importance. He will turn it over in his hands for a time, understanding its meaning to you, 
and he will return it to you along with a gift. I had nothing of particular value on me at the time, let alone of personal value. I felt through my pockets until I came upon my old Zippo lighter. An old girlfriend passed it on to me once she decided to quit smoking. Funny thing was, she picked up the habit again after the stress of the breakup and she wanted it back. Perhaps for an immature laugh, I decided to hang on to it. That was about the extent of its meaning to me. I didn't love it, but I liked it, and I hoped that would be enough. Just as old Tom had said, and I swear I saw a smile in those vague moments in his face, in those last moments, he didn't just examine that lighter. He judged my value because this was not really a gift. It was an exchange, and after he was certain of his investment, he returned the lighter to me. As he placed the lighter back in my hand, the moment it touched my skin, the world went black. It was in that last instant of consciousness that I wished I had taken Tom's final words seriously. He will return it to you along with a gift in exchange for seven years' service. He always collects. So be sure this is what you want, lad. Be sure that it's worth your life, because... You now belong to him. Since then, my life has been one of hazy nightmares, amnesia, and moments of clarity. I have gone to sleep at night, waking some days later in a sewer tunnel completely naked and holding mysteriously still warm, bloody masses in my hands. I have blacked out in mid-conversation, waking to see a television news report about a massive fire, and the arsonist fit my description. I have faint memories of places I don't recognize, people I've never met, and even places that shouldn't exist. I have torrential dreams of the land between, standing at my master's side like a pet on a leash. The next time I saw Jack, the friend I drove home that night, it was at the doorstep of his family's home with his wife and two children. He looked well, even fit. When I knew him, He was a sloppy, overweight bachelor and had no luck with the women. He'd also worn a ponytail in those days, and now he was balding. He hadn't seen me in years, but everyone assumed I was dead. I begged for his help, and the next thing I knew, I awoke in a dark alley somewhere. I was covered in bruises and cuts, and I was holding Jack's bloody wallet in my right hand. I don't know how long it has been but I have had terrible realization. When it was said that he would demand seven years of service, it didn't mean seven years from that night. It meant seven years in total. I'm a slave, and I can be spirited away at any moment. Sometimes I'll be fine for months. Sometimes I'll have my life back on track. Assuming that the nightmare is over, but he always calls for me again. I haven't even had the time to learn of what gift he had given me. Like many before me, I am ensnared in his world. Until my debt is paid in full, I am his unwitting puppet. I may never be free. This is the last time I will say it. Stay behind your computer monitor or book where it's safe. You don't want to know. 
It's just not worth it. Convince yourself that these things aren't true and keep your curiosity in check. Force yourself to lose interest. Find a new hobby if you can. If not for your sake, then for mine. I've already found the blood of too many meddlers on my hands. As it is... Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>